0: Hello. Thanks for tuning into Intangible Assets, a podcast by the Intellectual Property Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. I'm your host, David Lizerbram. The California Lawyers Association is the bar association for all California attorneys. Our mission is to promote excellence, diversity, and inclusion in the legal profession and fairness in the administration of justice and the rule of law. In this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Lisa Ramsey. Lisa is a professor of law at the University of San Diego School of Law, where she teaches and writes in the areas of trademark law, intellectual property, and international IP. We talk about her path to legal academia, why she fell in love with IP, as we all have, and we get into the weeds of her current academic focus, which is non traditional trademarks. And now here is my interview with Professor Lisa Ramsey. Lisa, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So let's kind of start at the beginning. How did you first end up uh, going to law school and getting involved in law?
1: So I uh, went to UCLA for undergrad and was very interested in advertising and but then i took a class media law and really enjoyed it and became interested in the first amendment and decided to go to law school so i actually ended up going to ucla law school as well from san diego originally though so ended up working down here in san diego after doing a year clerking in the eastern district of virginia but yeah so that's that's the story i uh...
0: so what was your experience as a clerk
1: it was it was fun. I was hoping to get more intellectual property cases, but, but we only had one trademark case while I was there. We were in the Rocket Doct- Docket in the yeah. Eastern District of Virginia, so a lot of interesting cases came through, but unfortunately not IP cases. So I was very excited that I was coming back to work at Gray Carey, where in Friedenrich, I had worked there as a summer associate, and they put me in the intellectual property litigation department, so I worked on a variety of IP matters.
0: So going back to law school, though, I mean, what made you interested in IP? Or did you know that before you went into law school?
1: Uh, you know, I took some IP classes uh, that I really enjoyed. And I just thought it, because I guess the, I saw some connection between advertising and trademark law. And I just thought it was, it was fun to, to be in a practice area where you can, you know, litigate cases involving music or films.
0: So once you started in private practice or once you started working with the firm, were you able to directly go straight into IP?
1: Well, so back then, this was back, oh, boy, I think in the late 90s, they actually just had a general litigation department. And so what I did was I went to uh, attorneys who were working on interesting cases. So we had some folks that were working on the Dr. Seuss Enterprises account. So I went and said, hey, I would love to work on some matters relating to Dr. Seuss, some people doing some knockoff golf club litigation. And so we were representing Cobra Golf, uh, Titleist, or sorry, Kushnet in some matters. And, and so I went to those folks and said, hey, I would love to work with you. And so one, at some point, Gray Carey split from just, a, from just general litigation and IP litigation, and the partners in the IP litigation group took me with them.
0: Got it. So you just kind of put yourself in the place where you wanted to be.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Which is, you know, we have uh, law students and other people who are interested listening to this. So it's always good to have that kind of a direction of if you have something you're interested in, you got to kind of put yourself in there. Did you ever, during that process, consider other areas of law or something you were, you know, attracted to or you really just were focused?
1: When I was in law school, I was thinking either employment law or intellectual property law. I liked the fact that you could become an expert in a discrete area of the law. And so actually, when I was a summer associate at Gray Carey, I had some advisors who were in the employment area and some in the IP area. But it just seemed like intellectual property law was so interesting. So I I told everyone that's what I wanted to do when they gave me the offer to work at the firm.
0: And how did you make your move into academia?
1: So when I was at the law firm, I enjoyed the writing part of it and mentoring junior associates but uh, was not as excited about the business development side of things. And so I actually met some folks who were law professors, and, and it just seemed like a wonderful job, right? You get to uh, teach, you get to write about subjects that you're interested in, and uh, you're not required to advocate on behalf of a particular client. And when I was at the firm, I'd worked on a really interesting matter uh, where we'd represented a client who had registered a domain name that we argued consisted of generic words, And the other party claimed that they own trademark rights in this term and said it was a descriptive term that had secondary meaning. And at the time, I was thinking that this was very problematic, that we would protect descriptive terms under trademark law that might be useful in an industry. So I decided to try to write a paper and ended up getting it published, the descriptive trademarks in the First Amendment, where I evaluated whether protecting trademark rights in descriptive terms might actually violate the right to freedom of expression. Commercial speech is protected by the First Amendment. Obviously, misleading commercial speech is not protected. But I applied First Amendment doctrine to laws protecting descriptive trademarks, got the paper published, and then went on the markets for law professors. They have a a, back in in Washington, D.C., they have something we call the meat market, M-E-E-T, and um, interviewed with a couple of schools and I uh, was very lucky to get an interview here in San Diego. And the rest is history, as they say. Um, I teach intellectual property law courses here, trademark law, trademark litigation, international intellectual property, and an IP survey course.
0: And when was when was that, that you started?
1: I started back in two thousand four.
0: You started as a professor back in two thousand four.
1: Right, right. Yes. So okay. yeah, so so yeah, I was an attorney at Gray Cary from uh, nineteen ninety seven up until I think two thousand two for a year. Well, I was actually trying to get the law professor job. I worked, did some appellate work with somebody who'd used to work at Gray Carey. and then once I got the paper published and, and went you know got the job at USC, then I then I started at USD in fall of two thousand four.
0: Okay, and how did you find being a professor versus working as an attorney, so to speak? I mean, was it did it reach your expectations? Were the things that were surprising to you?
1: What I really liked about it is become, you become an expert in a particular area of the law, right? So when you're, when you're litigating a trademark matter, right, you might become an expert in certain discrete areas of the law, but when you teach a trademark law class, you get to learn everything about it. And, and some people say the best way you learn about something is teaching it to other people. So I, I, you know, I already felt like I was an expert on trademark law when I was at the firm, but once I taught it, then I really felt like I knew it. I also, again, really enjoy the fact that I can think about what it is that I think should be changed in the law and then write a paper that might convince people to change the law. And so my scholarship is focused on how trademark laws might conflict with the right to freedom of expression. Um, So after that first paper, the descriptive trademarks and the First Amendment paper, I've tried to uh, write about how we might reform the law to better protect competition and free speech. So
0: one of those topics, and I'm looking at your paper right now, as you can see, but I saw you speak about a couple years ago at an IP section event about non-traditional trademarks, and that's one of the topics that I wanted to Discuss today. I mean, let's just start at the beginning. Can you kind of define non traditional trademarks and, and also inherently valuable expression and then how that kind of comes together?
1: Yes. So a non traditional trademark would uh, consist of anything from a single color to a product shape, a scent, a sound, a texture, or a flavor. And you can contrast that to what are, you know, traditional trademarks, which would be words, names, logos, two-dimensional product packaging designs, things like that. Now, it's true that we have protected, you know, colors as part of a design for a pretty long time, but it was the Qualitex case, which involved uh, someone claiming trademark rights and the color green gold for dry cleaning press pads where the Supreme Court said that the word symbol or device in the Lanamex definition of a trademark could mean that pretty much anything, almost anything, could qualify as a trademark if it could convey source distinguishing meaning. And so in that case, the court mentioned this would include a single color, but also a fragrance. And, and it gave the court gave a couple other examples. And so as a result of that now, it's, it's pretty clear that, that you can get trademark rights in, in product features. People also claim trademark rights in things like uh, having goats on top of the roof of a restaurant. People uh, claim trademark rights in holograms. And celebrities are claiming trademark rights in, in their images, things like that. So there are a number of things that, that might be considered, I guess, non-traditional. But I, I guess the best way to define it is to say it's the reverse of what's traditional, right? Anything that maybe is not a word name, product packaging, design, et cetera. Some some folks might include the decor of a restaurant in there, but also or the exterior design of a building. So, for example, Apple got a, a registration for the interior design of the Apple Store, the two pesos case is, is one of the early cases where the court, you know, talked about the fact that a restaurant decor can be protectable and also can be registered without proof of acquired distinctiveness or secondary meaning, that, that a restaurant decor can be inherently distinctive under trademark law. So uh, these days, a number of companies are trying to claim trademark rights in these kinds of marks. But what I argue in the paper is that certain types of non-traditional marks, just like traditional marks, might be inherently valuable, meaning that they conveyed messages, provided information before they were adopted and used as trademarks. And in that situation, you could argue that the person claiming trademark rights in this particular subject matter is free riding off this inherent value in the mark. So for example, if somebody claims trademark rights in the color green for some sort of product that is environmentally friendly, right? this might give them an advantage over other competitors who might also want to use the color green or even the word green in connection with the sale of their products.
0: I mean, I think colors, uh, when we talk about non-traditional trademarks, and I'm, you know, I do explain that to clients from time to time, I think colors are the easiest kind of thing to express because a lot of people identify you know, the Tiffany Blue, the UPS Brown as source identifiers, even if they haven't spent a lot of time thinking about trademarks. But something like we were talking before we started recording about smells can be potentially or arguably can be source identifiers. We talked a little bit about Play-Doh as, as one of those. But um, do we have any idea how many applications for the USPTO kind of fall into these non-traditional categories, I would think the vast majority are word marks and then design.
1: Yeah, I haven't done a study of this. I I believe I've read elsewhere, someone said that it's actually not very common to have registrations for non-traditional trademarks, but definitely applications to register these marks are increasing. A lot of times these kinds of applications are rejected on the ground that the mark lacks distinctiveness. It might be functional. So for example, the scent and flavor of peppermint for a medicine was found to be functional, and then also, uh, marks like that can be rejected on failure to function grounds. And so, so this peppermint scent was rejected both on functionality and failure to function grounds. And I just, I'm working on a paper right now about failure to function doctrine. I think it's very interesting doctrine that can be used in trademark law to promote competition and free expression because some types of marks might just really appear to be product attributes and not trademarks. And so, I, it, it's a company can do look for the mark advertising or maybe smell for the mark advertising if it's a scent. But but sometimes consumers might just think that this particular shape, right, this scent, this flavor, right, this texture is just a, a feature of the product, not a source identifying mark.
0: And I, I've seen people get confused between the concept of functionality and then failure to function because they're not really exactly the same sense of the word or it, it, they, it seems like they're more related than they are. So maybe you can just quickly define those two terms, because there's certainly going to be people people who are listening who are not really in the trademark world.
1: Now, that's a a great question. So first, let me talk about functionality doctrine. There are two types of functionality doctrine in the United States. The first I call utilitarian functionality. And this is the area of functionality doctrine that might overlap with patent law, right? If you have a patent on a particular device, maybe a dual spring design that holds up a, a traffic sign in the traffics case, it's more likely that courts will find that particular feature to be functional under trademark law, because it's anti-competitive to give a trademark owner or a, a trade, someone claiming trademark rights um, an exclusive right to use this product feature after the, the you know patent has expired. And so the Supreme Court test is, as is, is you ask whether the product feature is essential to the use or purpose of the article, or does it affect cost or quality? And if, if it is functional under this test, then then you can't get a registration for it. You also can't get trademark protection for it. There's a second type of functionality doctrine that sometimes is referred to as aesthetic functionality doctrine. And this asks whether protection of this particular product feature would provide a non-reputation related dis- benefit. So if you're protecting a mark because of the brand that has value, right? If someone's putting the Audi logo or VW logo on keychains, right? The argument here is that that's not something that's aesthetically functional, right? People want those keychains because of the brand. But if you're using the color black for packaging for flowers, then that, that particular black color might be aesthetically functional because other companies that might want to sell Flowers in black packaging uh, would be harmed if they can't do that because black is associated with bereavement, with Halloween, right, with weddings, you know, and and so or it may
0: just set off the color of the flowers. Well,
1: right, exactly, and so there, so there might be a particular use, a particular color, shape, scent, flavor, is is something that uh, would provide a competitive advantage. Then the argument is we don't want to grant one company exclusive trademark rights in that particular feature. Anybody in an industry should be able to use that that feature, and so. You can find uh, color to be utilitarian, uh, have utilitarian functionality. Example might be the color orange for life vests, right? But when I teach when I teach this to my students, I have to talk about, you know, if it's color, if it's an ornamental feature of of a product, it's more likely to fit under the aesthetic functionality doctrine. Although you do, courts do look at whether there are alternative designs or alternative colors, and that's what happened in the Qualtex case. The court said that. Green gold covers up the stains, but other colors can do this too. So courts don't always apply aesthetic functionality in these kinds of situations. It's only if there are no or few alternatives that would be sufficient for competitors. So that's functionality doctrine. What failure-to-function doctrine is doing is asking whether this particular word name, similar device, is actually functioning as a trademark. Is it identifying and distinguishing the source of goods and services? In the Patent and Trademark Office, you see some TMEP, Trademark Manual of Examination Procedure Provisions, which say that if this particular product feature is ornamental, right, or this phrase is ornamental when used on this product, it might fail to function as a trademark. So an example might be the phrase, I love you, displayed on jewelry, right? That was deemed to be ornamental. It failed to function as a trademark. But failure-to-function doctrine is also applied in contexts where functionality doctrine would not apply. So if someone tries to get trademark rights to a phrase like Black Lives Matter or just recently someone applied to register the Nazi uh, swastika symbol as a trademark for textiles and apparel and things like that, and the Patent and Trademark Office said that that particular mark failed to function as a trademark. So if it's a word or a symbol that conveys a political or social message or consists of a widely used message, right? Taco Tuesday, um, okay boomer, right, uh, or certain words that might be essential to be used in an industry, like the word dark for you know novels uh, or other common phrases that, that that might be descriptive or just informational in an industry, um, the argument is that these kinds of words, which might be used by many different companies or or a number of people in a community are not serving as trademarks or not functioning as trademarks.
0: Yeah, just because of this kind of confusion between functionality, which is one thing, and then failure to function, which is another thing, I think this is the time to just propose to the trademark world that we pick a synonym and assign right. one. Like we're going to use function for one of these, but not the other. Right. And we all just need to get together on that because right. it's
1: well. And, and one way to, to look at it is, uh, is so Alex Roberts, a professor in New Hampshire, uh, recently wrote a paper called "Trademark Failure to Function," and as she knows, and, I, and the paper that I, I'm working on right now is a response to this paper. And the way she phrases this is it's the use as a trademark requirement. So when your trademark is rejected, the PTO says that we're rejecting this mark on the ground it fails to function as a trademark, right? But one way to frame it is that it's the use as a trademark requirement, right? You have you can't be using this particular color or product feature in a decorative or ornamental way or in on the front of a t-shirt, right, as opposed to on a hang tag or on a label.
0: So, when we come back getting back to the non-traditional trademarks, you know, how do you propose that either courts or the PTO evaluate when they're faced with a non-traditional trademark whether there is a, what you'd call an inherently valuable expression issue?
1: Well, so at the Patent and Trademark Office, the challenge, right, is that you have the examiner who may or may not know about this meaning that particular word or symbol has, right? The color green, I think most people would associate that with this environmentally friendly message, so the examiner might not catch it, might not reject the application on uh, failure to function grounds or, or other grounds. But you can have during the opposition period, other people who might be following what's going on at the Patent and Trademark Office might say, "Hey, you know, might, might uh, oppose the mark and, and argue that this particular word or symbol or non-traditional mark, you know, this scent, this product shape." This color is is used in our industry, and it would be anti-competitive to grant uh, trademark rights here. So perhaps you know, PGO, you can you can reject it on functionality grounds, or on failure to function grounds, or lack of distinctiveness grounds. Right now, the trademark office allows members of the community file letters of protest. And there's a group, trademark watchdogs, which has been doing this with regard to word marks, and words and symbols displayed on apparel. But letters of protest could also be used in the connection with non-traditional trademarks. If, if companies in a particular industry see someone's trying to claim trademark rights to a particular representational shape or a color, a scent. And in my paper, I use the example of, of chocolate, right? I'm a big fan of chocolate, right? And so you could argue that the scent of chocolate might convey a message of indulgence, right? Or decadence. And that's maybe, kind of how I, in the paper, I bring this under the realm of freedom of expression. But even if you don't buy the free speech argument, right, granting trademark rights to the scent of chocolate or the flavor of chocolate for non-chocolate products is anti-competitive. And so, so you know, I'm hopeful that examiners will reject certain non-traditional marks on failure to function and functionality or lack of distinctiveness grounds. But if they don't do that, I'm hopeful that people from the community will challenge these marks in an opposition proceeding or a cancellation proceeding, one of the concerns that I have about non-traditional trademarks is that m- many of these require proof of distinctiveness for registration. And so, you know, maybe the examiners are doing their job making sure that there's distinctiveness, but, but maybe they're, they're not. But after five years on the trademark register, you can't challenge a mark ba- based on the ground of lack of distinctiveness or based on failure to function. And once, and then after Mark's been registered for five years, you can apply to make it incontestable. Once a mark is incontestable, if you sue somebody for infringement, they can't challenge the validity of your mark on the ground that it lacks distinctiveness or fails to function as a mark. The Park and Fly case is a case involving the phrase Park and Fly. The logo that included the phrase was deemed to be incontestable. And so when Dollar Park and Fly tried to use the phrase, park and fly and argued it was descriptive without secondary meaning, the court said you can't challenge it at this point. So in this new paper that I'm working on about failure to function doctrine, I argue that we should add failure to function and lack of distinctiveness as grounds to challenge the validity of of a registered mark to the incontestability provisions, but also allow people to petition to cancel marks on these grounds. And one of the reasons is that you might have a company who actually enters the market five years after the mark was registered, right? Or after the mark has become incontestable. Uh, and I think that not allowing people to challenge marks that don't identify the source of a product is problematic. It it doesn't further the goals of trademark law if we protect trademark rights in marks that are not source identifying.
0: Just taking kind of a, a devil's advocate approach to this, let's say we have a universe of, of uh, trademark users who you know are are in the non-traditional realm. You know, we've got a bunch of people in the marketplace who are believe in good faith that their, you know, their scent is distinctive, their color, their shape, whatever it might be, texture, etc. But we're raising the bar with these various kind of tests or other factors that we're considering. Does that suggest that um, only the most well-lawyered, most well-funded, largest firms in this space are going to have access to this area of non-traditional trademark registration and the Smaller upstart startup type firms will just simply not be able to to navigate those challenges you know could we have this kind of a i don't know regulatory capture or type issue where the larger firms are benefiting from a well intentioned desire to um, protect freedom of expression and to keep the trademark register clear from things that really should don't function as trademarks
1: that 's a good question so in this Chapter that I wrote, Non-Traditional Trademarks and Inherently Valuable Expression. One of the things I propose is that we reconsider granting trademark rights to colors or representational shapes, scents, that uh textures, et cetera, that were all pre-existing before someone adopted or used them as a trademark. And one of the reasons I, I propose that that maybe we don't give rights to anybody is because of the fact that large companies are the ones that might be able to afford to advertise these marks and, and sell lots of products that, that have these features. And so my Concern is that these large companies will get these trademarks and then we'll use them in an anti competitive way. So you could argue, say, well, you know, it's okay that we're protecting these kinds of marks because you have to show proof of distinctiveness, that it's not functional, et cetera. But I think you're right that it's the the big companies that are going to get these kinds of trademarks most of the time. And so what I would prefer is that Congress kind of re examine what we're doing here and, and think about should we really be protecting all of any, almost anything, or should we actually scale it back and allow protection of words, names, logos, product packaging designs that are two dimensional. I mean, I'm conflicted about this because I know that certain kinds of marks actually might uh, distinguish the products and services. For example, in the paper, I used the Lego minifigure product configuration. We have tons of these uh, toys at home. And and I think that that's distinctive and non-functional. The Play-Doh scent, I think, is distinctive. I actually did a smell test with my students and pretty much everybody could recognize the Play-Doh scent when they smelled uh, five different types of blue, you know, toy muddling compound but just because they can recognize that scent right or that product configuration I guess the question is should trademark law protect these kinds of things and so with regard to the product configuration the minifigure other kinds of product configurations you might be able to get protection under copyright law or design patent law and at some point those rights expire but trademark rights can last forever so it's it's problematic so, so I mean there are a number of different ways we can better protect competition and freedom of expression one would be to not grant trademark rights and certain kinds of marks at the very beginning, right? So that nobody gets rights, everybody can use these product features in the marketplace. Or we can have these requirements, right? Distinctiveness, non-functionality, use as a trademark, use in commerce requirements. So if we're going to give you rights, at least you got to do these things, right? Or perhaps we say, okay, you have rights, but it's a narrow scope of infringement, right? You have to show that this use by the third party is misleading, that it's commercial speech. Or there's no no cause of action here. Or you can have defenses, right? We have some statutory defenses, fair use uh, of a descriptive term of a name in the Lanham Act. We don't have a lot of good statutory defenses to infringement. And so one of the things I've argued in my papers is that we need more statutory defenses to provide clarity for these small businesses, right, who might just be using a color or a representational shape. And, and are not trying to confuse anyone, right, but they're sued for infringement. If you get that demand letter, it's a lot easier for you to say, no, what I'm doing is okay if you actually have a statutory defense. If you're someone who is making fun of a trademark owner, it's a lot easier to say I'm not liable if there's a parity defense to infringement in the statute. Uh, right now, the dilution provisions do have a parity defense defense for use of a mark in news reporting or in comparative advertising, but we don't have statutory defenses for infringement. And so I think it's important that we we have reforms. You know, at a minimum, I think we need to have more statutory defenses. We might want to consider requiring commercial use of a mark for infringement in the statute. A number of courts, uh, including the Ninth Circuit, actually say that commercial use is required for infringement because of the First Amendment, but maybe we add that to the statute, right? In dilution law, you can only be liable if it's a commercial use. Some professors have argued we should have a trademark use requirement for infringement, right? So this is, you know, kind of similar to the failure to function issue, right, that you need to actually use a trademark as a trademark for Infringement. But here, the argument would be if someone puts a, a trademark, someone's trademark on the front of a shirt, right, if it's more of an ornamental or decorative use. If you put Black Lives Matter on the front of a shirt, or put a smiley face, or put the phrase life is good on the front of a shirt, but don't have that on a hang tag or on a label, you could argue that that's a non-trademark use of this phrase or of this symbol, and it should not be infringing. And so, so you can, you can protect small businesses and individuals in a number of ways, but I think an import, it's very important to make the law very very clear uh, to make it easier for for people accused of infringement. You know, they, So they can find out what it is that is and not is not allowed by the trademark laws. And you know, we mentioned the f- First Amendment before. In First Amendment law, if a law is is too vague, it might be unconstitutional. This issue was raised in the Tam and Bernetti cases, right? The fact that if we, if we the denial of an application to register on the ground it was disparaging, immoral, or scandalous. Uh, it's kind of unclear what's scandalous, what's not, right? What's immoral, what's not. And um, but I would argue that that in, in trademark law, it's not always clear whether certain uses of a trademark are allowed or prohibited. And so I think that having more statutory defenses or or possibly not granting trademark rights in flavors, for example, just might be a good idea. It might provide more certainty to people who just want to sell goods and services and and, uh, make a living.
0: Well, this is great. This is a lot to think about. I appreciate you sharing all this with our listeners. People are interested in these issues or they want to follow up with you. Is there a a best way to... uh to reach out to you or to, to engage with what you're writing and talking
1: about? Oh, sure. I'm at the University of San Diego School of Law. My website's lisapramsey.com. People can send me an email, lramsey at sandiego.edu. And also I, I post, not on a regular basis, on Twitter at lpramsey. So uh, those are all places where I would love to get feedback on my scholarship and any suggestions for how we might improve trademark law. I'm actually currently working on a book about trademark law and free speech law and how they can potentially conflict and how we might reduce that conflict. And I would love any suggestions of how we might improve the law to to better protect freedom of expression.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intangible Assets, a podcast by the Intellectual Property Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. Save the date for the IP in Entertainment and Media Conference, which will be held May 29, 2020 at the UCLA Luskin Center. And we have several MCLE webinars coming up soon, including one on cookies, consent, and advertising technology under the CCPA, which is, of course, California's new Privacy Act. And we have one on emojis and the law. So if you don't think you're getting interesting and entertaining and informative content from the California Lawyers Association Intellectual Property Section, you're not looking hard enough. For more information about the conference and the webinars, you can go to our website, calawyers.org ip events If you're interested in joining the Intellectual Property Law Section of the California Lawyers Association, visit calawyers.org slash join ip. And finally, if you want to send us an email about the show, including a suggestion for a guest or a topic, anything pro or con you'd like to say about it, you can send it to IPpodcast at We look forward to hearing from you, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you next time on Intangible Assets.